You guys just keep doing whatever you want to do. (laughs) We can't really go anywhere, so it's kind of good. We can just all get together on Wednesday night. Tell everybody else about our secret little party we're having here. The Lord is good. Amen. We're going to pick up tonight in verse 13, a little bit of review in Acts chapter 15, and hopefully finish chapters 15 and 16, a lot of scripture tonight, but we're on Paul's second missionary journey as we began in part of chapter 15. He's now primarily going to be ministering in what's modern day Greece, but he will be Venturing into a number of places he's already been, kind of making his trips back through certain areas that he's traveled through. Uh, and he's really making that gospel known to the Gentiles. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture because here as we continue these missionary adventures with Paul, there are a lot of similarities between these adventures and what we find in the world today because these same circumstances exists. We're going to get into chapter 16 tonight. We're going to see the division when Paul and Barnabas actually split up. We're going to find the story of the Philippian jailer, all these wonderful things that we can draw so much from in our own personal walks with the Lord. Before we do that, I want to pray tonight. There's so much going on in the world. It's crazy. It just... You know, the last week there was a little blurb kind of came across the news wires that the Chinese had developed a stealth fighter, and everybody said, oh, they haven't really done it. And then it test flew this week. So, you know, they were kind of like, well, I guess they do actually have one. And, of course, if you're keeping track of what's going on right now, we're going to pray specifically for the people of Brisbane, Australia, because they're really going through it. Just crazy flooding there. The whole center of the city is underwater, I think. There's lots of things going on in the world. Our own community, kind of pray for the businesses that are here, just the tough times that everybody's going through with the road closure. Uh, It has been pretty much confirmed a minimum of one year, um, possibly two, before the 3.30 has opened up again, Uh, but a minimum of one. And I can tell you from having been previously a contractor that did government work, when they say a minimum of one, uh, they actually mean two. Uh, They're telling you a minimum of one because they don't want to get the bad phone calls if they actually tell you what they really think. So um, don't be too dismayed if it goes longer than a year and could very well be more than this winter, but probably next as well. Settle in. God's still on the throne. I was talking to Pastor Chuck, and he was was going, you know, it's better than riding donkeys, you know. I said, yeah, but we're spoiled. (laughs) (laughs) Teaching us all patience. You know, like we were laughing because we're right in the middle of basketball season. And, of course, all the teams we play are off the mountain. So, you know, three nights a week we're traveling someplace two hours from here to go play a basketball game and come back. And we're learning some new car games. God's good. Amen. We had it no better than what we have here on the mountain in this life. And we are truly, truly, truly blessed. And so let's pray 
And then we'll ask the Lord to bless his word as we pray for these needs. Father God, we want to bring those who right now are suffering underneath this flooding in Australia. Lord, we know what that's like. We're going through difficulties because of it too, but nothing like what they're going through. We're homes and buildings and people have been swept away and cars and buildings falling into the river. Lord, just crazy times that we live in. We pray that you'd be with them. We pray that it'd be a chance for the church there in Australia to step up with the gospel message, Lord, to bring hope in a difficult time. And we pray also, Father God, for our own community, Lord, the many businesses here that are just suffering, Lord, just simply less traffic. And when we do have it, it's so crowded people can't get around. And so, Lord, we just ask you to intervene miraculously on our behalf and for the road repairs. Lord, if there's any way to get it done quicker than the time that's been given, then we will give you praise and honor and glory for the miracle that you wrought. And uh, Father God, we just look around the world today and we recognize that these things all are parts of the birth pains. Lord, birds falling out of the sky and fish dying and Lord, we do not know when the Son of Man comes, but we know this, it's sooner than it's ever been. And so, Father, we look up tonight, and as we look into your word, we ask that you'd speak to us, that you'd bring us your truth. Encourage us through the lives of this great apostle, Lord, through Timothy and Luke who travel with him. We pray that we would be blessed, and Lord, we pray that we'd be encouraged and strengthened. Lord, we pray that we'd be excited about the days and times that we live in, and Lord, we ask that you'd increase all of our patience. Lord, help us as we endure, as your word declares, as good soldiers. Lord, this time that, uh, Lord, maybe none of us want to go through, but we're in it together. And so may we find joy in the simple things of life. Lord, bless us now as we study your word. We pray these things in the blessed name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Pick up again, if you would, a little quick review here in verse 13 in Acts chapter 15. is. James kind of steps in. Remember, Peter's already spoken. Paul and Barnabas have spoken. And now James kind of relates this incredible picture of how the church now is just one body. And it's very interesting, and we could make a very clear cross-connection, if you will, between Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, as he would write there in the 12th chapter. And he writes that there really it's just one church. There's one body. There's many members, and that church has an awful lot of different appendages. It has all kinds of different flavors and tastes and colors and textures and needs and likes and dislikes and all of those things. And in it, God gives gifts to men. And he gives gifts to men in order to minister to those various needs. Not everyone has the same gift. We're going to see that here are two guys who genuinely love each other, uh, have a, a tremendous disagreement that causes them to split up and go their separate ways and quite honestly double their efforts because they both have ministries after their separation that are used of the Lord in mighty ways. And so we sometimes look at what God allows and we think it's negative from our perspective. But in God's plan, sometimes even the negative things of life are the very things that are needed to accomplish his purposes. We certainly see that in times of great difficulty, trial, tribulation. Uh, sometimes in those things that we go through with maybe our health or our finances or some interpersonal thing maybe within our family to where we would never choose those things. But God knows exactly what he's doing and he allows at just the right time and opportunity 
for a special gift to be delivered to you, hand-signed by the Lord, saying, here's the way that we're going to work this together for the good. And so we see that here in verse 13. It says, and after they'd become silent, referring to uh, Peter's discourse, James answered, saying, men and brethren, listen to me, Simon, who is Peter, uh, has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And, you know, remember, this is a Jewish audience. And as I shared with you last time we were together, as they hear these things, this is hard for them to swallow. This is really difficult after a thousand and uh, almost 2,000 years uh, of the Jewish way of life, the Jewish way of religion, everything Jewish being really the only monotheistic religion on the entire earth. And here they are, they're being told, God's chosen out of the Gentile nation people for his own. They're thinking, well, didn't God make promises through Abraham? The answer was yes. Didn't God make promises through Isaac? Yep. Didn't God make promises through David? Yep. He did all those things. And so they're automatically thinking that, is he really saying that all these things didn't matter? And the answer to that is no. Because God's going to keep his promises that he made of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you get to the book of Romans, you look from Romans chapter 11 to chapter 13, it's principally about the Jewish people and how God's going to one day fulfill every last promise he's made to them. He will save them. He's going to cause them to see their Messiah. So all those things that he promised, he's going to give them back the land, which may be happening sooner rather than later, the way things are going in the Middle East. And he goes on now, and with these words of the prophets, they agree that it is written, and after this I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. Interestingly enough, ultimately, and we're going to be looking on Sunday at the rise of the Antichrist, the Antichrist is going to have to have a temple to sit in because he's going to demand to be worshipped from the temple that is supposed to be the place where God is worshipped, specifically David's temple, which doesn't currently exist in the Middle East. And so there's a time coming when that temple is going to be rebuilt, which will be the third temple that will stand there. And the Antichrist is going to occupy it. And so there is yet still the fulfillment of this promise to come that the Jewish people will have a temple to worship in. If you follow the Temple Mount Society or the Temple Mount Faithful, a number of groups on the earth that are already prepared, they've made uh, the temple instruments, they have the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, uh, the incense altar, the, all the things are there. They you know, claim that they know where the Ark of the Covenant is. There's all kinds of crazy things going on in the world. And so as those things unfold... From a Jewish perspective, they're looking at the temple. Now, remember, this meeting is in Jerusalem, so they're looking up at the temple and going, well, it's still there. Of course that's going to happen. Can you imagine what happened in 78 A.D. when Titus sacked that temple and it was gone and it has been no more ever since? You can go to the Temple Mount today and find no temple. God's going to make good on this promise, too. It will happen, as surely as we're sitting here tonight. And so he will, I will rebuild the temple of tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up. And so the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles, who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things, known to God from eternity, are all of his works. And so relating this back to the Jewish people now, it is so important for us in our day and time to not lose sight of the separation that exists still to this day between Jew and Gentile. 
We both get saved the same way, but God has made specific promises to the Jewish people, and he is going to keep those very specific promises with regard to the Jewish people. The church has not replaced them. We are simply now made whole in the eyes of the Lord exactly the same way. By grace and through faith, we each have to profess Jesus Christ as Savior, whether we be Jew or whether we be Gentile. We are, as Galatians 3.28 says, one in Christ. But we are not one in the promises that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those were given to the Jewish people. And they are going to be one day fulfilled for the Jewish people, including a temple to worship in, including the land that was given to them. That is the context of Joel chapters 2 and 3, where he declares what will happen in the very last days. As God says, I've had enough. You've persecuted my people. You have stolen my land. You've given it to other people. I'm here to take it back at the second coming of the Lord. And at that time, they will, as Romans chapter 11 plainly declares, be saved. They will come to Christ at that point in time. That is yet future. A careful reading of Amos chapter 9 uh, gives us a time at the end when God will regather his people to Israel, put them in their land, and bless them abundantly, and he is already doing that. They have the ninth strongest economy in the world. Uh, their shekel is worth as much as our dollar. Uh, they have just found natural gas off the coast of Israel. Uh, there's all kinds of crazy things. The Palestinians are setting up right now to, to claim, in essence, Palestine, or what they claim is the land of Palestine for themselves. Israel's not going to do that. These are incredible times that we live in. We're, we're watching end times events unfold right before our very eyes every day in the paper. So it's an exciting time. Now imagine that these things were spoken 2,000 years ago. They were true then. They're truer in some sense today because we're closer to them being fulfilled. We're out there at the end of that timeline instead of at the beginning. And so here, you know, the Jews were thinking, no, we, you know, there's no way this can happen because that would mean we fell through the cracks. You know, God saved them and didn't save us. Hasn't fulfilled these promises. That's because they didn't understand the real thing that they were looking at was these things would occur in the very last days. And they would specifically occur after the day of the Lord. And so, now we come to verse 19. And therefore I judge you that we should not trouble those among the Gentiles who are turning to God. You see, the Jewish people in this setting... We're looking at these guys and going, how can they be saved? I mean, we're Jews. We have the law. We have a, a history on our side. We've lived in this land now for a couple of years. It was originally called Canaan. It, it's now the land of Israel. And so here they're all, you know, this just doesn't make any sense to us. Don't trouble them. Here is the problem. Because they couldn't see that this was going to happen at a later date and time, they figured it had to happen right now. And because they figured it had to happen right now, that meant that everybody also needed to be a Jew. Because if you weren't fully Jew and fully saved, you had a real problem. Because then they were combining the two, much like a lot of the church does today, and say, well, we're just one. We are one in Christ. But we are not one in the promises that God made to the Jewish people. Those promises were made specifically to them, and he intends to fulfill them specifically to them. 
That's why when I look at the rapture of the church versus the second coming of the Lord, I'm really thankful that I'm not going to be here when he fulfills part of that promise to them, which is that they will become as a cup of trembling to the entire world, that the world will come unhinged, that there will be a world ruler who will seem to make peace with them, but after three and a half years break that covenant of peace, and become exactly what he is, which is a man of war, the result of that is the nation Israel will come to their Messiah. They were looking at it, man, this is a mess. Gentiles are dreaming God. But that we write to them and abstain from things polluted by idols, flee sexual immorality, things strangled and from blood. You see, they begin to kind of mix in the law with grace. And we're going to find out that Paul... In a, in a very wonderful way, as Luke records this, uh, begins to speak to these issues and trying to help them to understand it. And he says, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. They're starting to make the comparison. Are you trying to tell me that everything Moses said was not true? And the answer is, to the Gentile world, the law has been negated by the grace of God. But it hasn't been negated to the Jewish people, and it hasn't been made less important. It's been fulfilled by Christ. Jesus Christ made that very plain. He said, I haven't come to remove one yot or one tittle of the law, not even a punctuation point of the law, but rather fulfill it. But I'm going to fulfill it by grace. And he says then, Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named surnamed Bersabbas, and Silas, the leading men among the brethren. And then they wrote this letter to them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. Since so he's, he's actually containing a letter within a letter right now. It's like if you were quoting from someone else's work and you throw it into the story that you have now written. So he writes this, Since we have heard that some of you went out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. We, that being Paul, that being the Jerusalem church, that being the apostles themselves made no such commandment. So when someone comes to you and says, you know, you really can't be a Christian unless you keep the law, unless you keep the Sabbath on the Sabbath, unless you do all that the law commands, you're really not a real Christian. And there are a number of groups of people that do that, chiefly among them the Seventh-day Adventists. They're... they're simply wrong. Scripture itself says, not so, written from the hand of Paul himself to the church that was in Asia Minor at the time. That is not what we commanded. It seemed good to us, being assembled in one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who also report the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Now notice where this actually comes from. It's not just the writings of men. It is a word from the Holy Spirit. It's a word from God. And it says to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols. Now why would they say that? There's a very important lesson to be learned here. 
We don't want to unnecessarily offend anyone. And so in this particular setting, what he's saying to them, it isn't going to kill you to abstain from food offered to idols. That kind of makes some sense. It's rather like if you have the choice to go buy your food at a porn shop or buy your food at Albertsons, go buy it at Albertsons, amen? Because someone might be offended. They may see you going in that store and go, that's not Jesus, And so he says to them, don't go hang out in the pagan places. Make sure and separate yourself out. Don't do that. But notice how he doesn't tell them to keep any of the law itself. He says, abstain from food offered to idols, from the blood and things strangled. He does that for a very practical reason, because that could have led to poisoning. That was the reason God gave that particular command. Uh, to the Jews in the first place. It was actually a command for hygiene. You want to make sure the blood's drained out so the meat doesn't spoil. And so he tells them, don't do that. And then, from sexual immorality, duh. So he gives them practical commands, but he does not tell them to keep the law. And interestingly enough, in keeping these practical commands, guess what he's going to really do for the average Jewish person? When they see these people, okay, these Christian guys... They don't go to the pagan temples. They don't do these things which our God told us not to do, which are obviously not good for you. And they stay away from practical sins that we struggle with on an everyday basis. So they're actually looking to the Jewish person like they're walking with the Lord. It's so important, family of God, that our outward appearance, our works, the things that we do, the things that we say, the way that we act, meet up with the character of Christ. That's all he's really encouraging them to do. He's just saying, be like Jesus. Be like God. And remember, they're one and the same. So to tell somebody to act like God, to act like Jesus, or to do what the Holy Spirit would tell you, you would have total and complete consistency in all three of those views. And so he reminds them, if you keep for your, keep from yourselves from these things, you do well. And he says, farewell. So he just reminds them, you're not to keep notice, no feast days, No going into the temple, no sacrificing, nothing is in there other than these three things. Very practical things for them to do so that their witness would be very broad. Can I talk to you for a moment about these things? People come to me sometimes, and I want to be very careful about this. People will come to me. I've had employees. I've had kids. I've had some of your own children. Well, should I get tattoos? And I will look at them, and I will say, not If I were your parent, would I encourage you to get a tattoo? And here's why. Because someday you're going to have an opportunity to minister to somebody who finds that offensive. And it is going to limit the number of people that you can minister to. Is it inherently evil? The answer is no. Is it even necessarily sinful? The answer is no. But what it does do is shorten the list of people that you can minister to. Because there will be people that will go, you know, gosh, I I don't quite get it. Now, in saying that, I mean no one to be condemned in any way, shape, or form. But that is the truth. It's the same reason that when I talk to people about smoking, can I find you a verse that says you can't smoke? Nope, I sure can't. But I can tell you that if you're standing out in front of, you know, some store someplace and you've got a cigarette hanging out of your mouth, 
and somebody walks up to you, you're probably going to have a tougher time telling them about Jesus than if you didn't have the cigarette hanging out of your mouth. So there are things that we should abstain from, not because they're necessarily wrong, but because they shrink the scope of those whom we can minister to. And so that is exactly what Paul is saying here. Now, I probably just made some of you very uncomfortable. I did not mean to do that. That is not my point in any way, shape, or form. My point is to remind you that your actions always have consequences, either for the kingdom or for the world. And the more that you do to be like the kingdom kid that you actually are, the better off you are in the long run and the more usable you are to the Lord. Does that mean you can't be used if you smoke and have a tattoo? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying at all. And that's not what scripture declares. But what I am saying is your window just got a little narrower. We want our window as broad as we possibly can as we minister. You know, could I come in dressed in, you know, like crazy clothes and wearing, you know, a Norwegian antler hat or something? Yes, I could. I wouldn't necessarily be in sin. But some of you would think he has totally lost his mind. And you would go out the door and I could preach to you the pure, unadulterated word of God while wearing a Norwegian antler hat. And you would think that, nah, he's probably not right in the head and I'm not sure I should listen to him. And that's an extreme example. Now, please hear me. That is an extreme example of what I'm saying. And everything we do has that capacity. It's the same thing with having a casual beer. It's the same thing with that bottle of wine that maybe you feel you have liberty to do, which you do. If God's given you that liberty, I'm not telling you you can't have a glass of wine with dinner, and I'm not saying you can't have a bottle of champagne on your anniversary. There's nothing inherently sinful about those things. But I can tell you, for me as a pastor, and as your pastor, that the more of those things that are liberties that you do, you shrink the size of the group of people that you can minister to. Because there are people that do find that offensive. There are people that have a view that's way out here, and there are people that have a view that's way out here, and the more broad I am in trying not to offend, the more people I can minister to. It is that simple. It's the same reason that you shouldn't be driving really fancy cars and have huge homes, walk around with big old diamond rings on your fingers. Those things offend people. They shrink the scope of who you can minister to. And so I want to really encourage you, get the message that's being presented here. What he does is he says, I want you to be able to minister in fullness there. So let's do what we can to make sure that we can minister to the broadest group of people possible as you go to this city. And so, when they were sent off, verse 30 says, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered together the multitude and delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced in its encouragement. Now, it's crazy. They find an encouragement. They just got set free. Okay, we can do these three things. We can do this. This is no big deal for us. He hasn't asked us to keep the whole Jewish law, but he sure has made us a whole lot more palatable to the Jewish people because for the most part, doing those three things are going to make them look kind of Jewish, but not put them under the bondage of the law. And when they had read it, as they rejoiced in that encouragement, now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets, also exhorted and strengthened. The word that's translated, they're prophets, 
is a forth teller. Someone who forth tells that which has already been spoken by the Lord. It really could be translated pastors. It's someone who speaks the truth that the Lord's spoken to them. Exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. In other words, they spoke the word of the Lord to them. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren and to the apostles. And so, however, it had seemed good to Silas to remain there. And Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. And so here you kind of get a picture of how doctrine and duty gets blended together, how our words and our walk have to match up, how we're trying to reach out to people as much as we possibly can and literally be all things, as Paul will say, to all men that I might win some. In other words, my goal is to be as much like Jesus and as little like the world as possible and as welcoming as I possibly can and as non-offensive as I possibly can and in the sense of being broad-minded, also being neutral in as many things as I possibly can. Neutrality or temporality is another very good word. In other words, being tempered or in the middle of all things is the best way to look at it. It's the best way to reach the most amount of people. Now, you will always have people that will be offended. I've had people actually tell me, well, you know, you couldn't even minister because you don't have a tattoo. Quite honestly, that's probably true. There's probably some truth to that. That's why we have biker churches and, you know, stuff like It's perfectly okay. And there's a place in ministry for that. We're actually going to see that in the breakup of Paul and Barnabas. Because one's going to go one way, one's going to go the other. They minister to two different groups of people. I want to really encourage you, as you think broadly and as you think neutrally and as you think temporally, you know, I want to be temperate in all things, you're also saying to the Lord, you just use me where you want me to be. And then he comes along and fills in the holes. Okay, you know what? Jeff is not going to minister really well to this group of people. But you know what? Here's this guy in the church. Now, he's lived a life just like them. And that was before his walk with the Lord. And now I'm going to take him out of the world. And I'm going to use him to minister to that little unique group. We just want to simply be put in God's toolbox in the most neutral way we possibly can. So wherever you are right now in your walks with the Lord... We want to do as few things to limit the work of the Lord in our lives as we possibly can. It's that simple. James emphasizes in his epistle that, that our walk, that faith without works is dead. Amen. And he goes on to say that I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, if, if my faith isn't working, if it's not doing something, then I, I'm kind of hollow. I, I'm not really keeping up with what I've said I would be. And so for the Jews, they were thinking it was the law and pretty much the law alone and this grace thing was added to it. They were missing the point that it was actually grace and that law could only be fulfilled in grace. And so for our doctrine, the doctrine of grace to be full, grace should produce in us good works of righteousness. And that's a, this is a place that people often get hung up. Matter of fact, there's a, there's a doctrinal stance known as antinomianism, and it basically means that our minds are so perverse and our bodies while we're here on this earth are so carnal that it really doesn't matter what we do with them. You can just sin as you please, do whatever you want, and because grace is so great that you're still going to go to heaven. 
Can I remind you that Scripture does not teach that? And in fact, it's very implicitly the opposite direction that Paul would write to the church in the letters to the Corinthians, the letters to the Galatians, the letters to the Roman Christians, that if you are saved, then your life has to change. It is marked by change. That, that it isn't you doing the law that makes you righteous, it's you living out grace that makes you righteous. It is you walking, therefore, after the Spirit and then not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Grace produces righteousness. Grace does not produce carnality. The Jewish people believed that the only way you could be, in essence, righteous was to have external works that proved so. You see, they had the works before the grace, and we need to have the grace before the works. It was just simply reversed. And so Paul's reminding them that this new journey that they would be on as they walked with the Lord, they would actually be better at keeping the law because of grace than they ever were at trying to find the grace of God through the law. Beautiful picture of how these things begin to work out. Paul and Barnabas uh, now are going to go. They sometimes... When people work together, I can just tell you this, that differences do come up and things do happen uh, upon occasion in in the ministry. Um, Paul and Barnabas are a classic example of this, and ultimately they are going to split up. Um, But I, I find that most of the time problems in churches don't come from real differences of things that matter, but they come from differences in things that don't matter. And it's really important that if we're going to have differences, that they be about some substance rather than about which color the church is going to be painted or whether, you know, we we worship on a certain day or not or our service times are a half hour earlier than they actually are right now. Those types of things, if they split you up, you were never brothers and sisters in the first place. It's that simple. Verse 36, and then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit the brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, also called Mark. This is the author of the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And Barnabas wants to take Mark along. And this is going to be the source of the dissension between the two of them. That Paul insisted that they should not take with them one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And so Paul's view is this guy abandoned us. And because he abandoned us, he was really not to be trusted. That's the basic message here. And sometimes we have people who have disagreements like this. This is the place where you have the pragmatist and the person who really is probably more reliant upon the grace of God. Where you have someone who just looks at spreadsheets. I have a tendency to be like that from a natural standpoint. My brain works in numbers and columns and check marks and all of those kind of things. I have a tendency to be that way. I am probably a little more Pauline in my view of this particular issue than I am a Barnabas, who, remember his name, means son of encouragement. And so here Paul's view is we gave him a shot, he failed, probably not a wise thing to drag this Yehu along with us. 
and I am paraphrasing scripture here for the purpose of illustration. Okay. On the other hand, Barnabas says, it's cool, man. It's all right. You know, he just, he like had a bad day or something. I don't know. He was out smoking something. You see, you can kind of see how there's times when different people with different gifts, actually both of them being right to some degree. Was Paul correct? I believe so. Was Barnabas correct? Absolutely. You know the cool thing? God uses both of them. He sends them different directions. He doesn't change Paul. Paul ministers to a group of people. He doesn't change Barnabas. Barnabas ministers to a group of people. He uses both of them right where they're at. Notice what he says. As Paul insists, and then verse 39, the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed on to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. Isn't that interesting that his legalism brought the grace of God? His kind of, you know, well, he's just, well, he's lazy or something. We don't really know exactly what he thought about him, but it appears that he felt like Mark wasn't really to be trusted. And so commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. And so here Paul and Barnabas agrees on, they agree on the importance of this trip, but they haven't got a clue on how to make it happen. They're on two different pages, two dedicated men of the Lord, but they couldn't settle their own disagreements. Can I say to you, I I wish I hadn't, but I have been involved in many of these types of things where there's been members of churches that have been fighting with each other. There's been pastors that have been fighting with each other. There have been denominations that are fighting with each other. And they, they have a completely different view on a very specific group of things. And because of it, they just can't get along and all of a sudden two different directions. Can I also say to you that most of the time, if both the parties involved really want to serve the Lord, God has a way to make it so they can both do that. Everybody doesn't have to necessarily minister together. I had a couple of guys that I was over in Austria with that I love dearly to this day, but we can't minister together. We are cut out of such totally different cloth. It is impossible for us to minister together. We're, we're like, we're like polar opposites in the way we handle almost everything. But I absolutely know that those men love the Lord. They are both serving Jesus to this day. And so am I. God's used us both. But we couldn't minister together. It wasn't what God had planned for us. That's not always a bad thing. I can tell you in my case, and this is not the only case in my life. That has always resulted in the kingdom multiplying, as long as that split is a split that honors the Lord. In other words, it's not like, I hate your guts, go away, and I hope you die somewhere. That is not a biblical split. That is not, you go your way and be used of the Lord, and I'll go my way and be used of the Lord, and God bless you, and please keep me posted on what's going on in your life. That's, I hope you don't make it wherever you go. God can't use anyone like you. Now, I have been on the other side of that equation to where it's been very hurtful and very hateful and unbelievably mean-spirited. I've had a brother look me in the eye and call me Judas to my face. 
I've been on that, you know, really not. You know how you can tell the difference? One word, I bet you can guess it. Starts with an L. No, love. <coughs> Close, though. It's what you are when you don't have love. No, it, it, it's loving. At the end of the day, are you loving each other? That doesn't mean you have to hang out. That means do you love each other as brothers in the Lord? Are you genuinely concerned that that person is going to go and be used of the Lord for the best that God can do with them? When you can say that you genuinely love that person enough to see them succeed even when you do not agree with how they function, then you can say that you've parted with love. We must part with love. 1 Corinthians 13 should be the thing that should be able to be applied there. What, what goes on in that passage is very easy for us to remember. Love, love isn't boastful. It, it's not mean-spirited. It doesn't keep records of wrong. It's kind. It's gentle. It exhibits, in essence, the fruit of the Spirit in action. And so these guys disagreed, and God simply made the church grow. So we begin chapter 16, notice here in verse 1, And then he came to Derbe and to Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple there was named Timothy. Now notice this, you remember, if you know your Bible, guess who Timothy becomes? He becomes Paul's understudy. He basically is used of the Lord to undergird Paul at a time in his life when he is not physically strong, when he's not doing well. And actually the split with Barnabas brings Timothy into Paul's life. And Paul was forever enriched by that relationship. He would write not one, not two, but three letters to him. He, he, would, he would begin to, to minister and and speak to the issues of his heart. He would come along and disciple him. And so God gave Paul this young man, in essence, as a disciple, to really impart the ministry vision into his life and then send him out. And from it, we as pastors have what we call the pastoral epistles, the books of Timothy and Titus and all these wonderful books that kind of tell us how to do ministry. So if Paul had stayed with Barnabas, I doubt those letters would have ever been written. And so God being God, knowing exactly what he's going to do, he multiplies by dividing. He splits them up and says, okay, you go over here and become a greater thing than you were before, and you go over here and become a greater thing than you were before. He was the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed but his father was Greek. Kind of an interesting combination. So imagine how, look how God works this out. Isn't this cool? So Paul's going to go and minister principally to Gentiles, and so Timothy is actually half Gentile and half Jew. It's wonderful what God's doing here. So he gets the best of both worlds in this discipleship. He knows what it means to be specifically Jewish through his mother. He knows what it's like to be specifically Gentile through his father. And so Paul has to work out all these doctrinal things. Can you imagine the conversations that they have? Because Paul, in essence, is a Jew in a Gentile world. And now he's got somebody to talk to. Well, what do you think about when we talk about the law? Now do you understand how Paul could write some of these beautiful letters like the church to Rome, how he writes to them, how he wrote to the church at Galatia, and how all of this grace is just in there, but he's addressing something very difficult, which is Judaizing. Those guys that were still trying to press the Jewish law on people, he says, no, man, you're saved by grace. The church at Ephesus. So God does this thing by this split. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because 
of the Jews who were in that region. Now notice this, it's kind of a cool thing. Because really what happens is, does he need to be circumcised? No. But if he's going to minister to Jews, it's a really, really good idea. If you're going to, you know, going to be about that group of people, if you want to reach, remember what I said, the broader group, guess what he could do? He's got a Greek father and a Jewish mother. He's circumcised. He's hanging out with Paul, who is a Jew, but he's the minister to the Gentiles. This guy is as broad in his scope as you can possibly be. He's reaching out rather than trying to condense down and, and try and tell God, well, I'll work as long as you only use me right here. Never tell God what to do with you. It's a bad thing. It, it brings consequences you won't like. And so, for all they know, that his father was, all, his father was a Greek, and as far as they went through those cities, they delivered them to decrees, the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and the elders of Jerusalem. So really easy. Don't eat meat that was strangled. Okay, make, make sure you've got three things that they told them they needed to do, and that's it. No big deal. And so the churches were strengthened in the face and increased in number daily. And through this very simple thing, <coughs> excuse me, we find the church actually growing. It wasn't complex. It wasn't a whole bunch of laws. Sometimes when people look at Calvary Chapel from the outside, you know, they're kind of like, you're, you're what? You're a loose association of affiliated churches with a like doctrinal statement, but you're totally autonomous. Uh, you all are looking kind of stupid right now. <laughs> yeah, Calvary Chapel is not a denomination. We, we, I don't answer to another Calvary Chapel. We don't have, you know, some board that you have to go before or any of those kind of things. We're just a loose affiliation of like-minded churches that have a similar doctrinal statement, and we believe in what we call the Calvary Distinctives, which is we teach the Word of God cover to cover, and we do most of those things rather similar. But we are not a denomination. So looking at it from the outside, we minister to a lot of different kinds of people. There are Calvary chapels that look every bit like any Baptist church that you've ever been into. There are some Calvary chapels that look a whole lot like some Pentecostal churches that you've been into. You, you see, you, you might find that a little bit strange, but that's exactly what the church in the book of Acts was. Wherever the, the apostles went, wherever men were sent out, they weren't sent out to change the people. They were sent out to minister to the people. One of the wisest things Pastor Chuck ever told me, he says, wherever you get sent, he says, you just minister to whom God sends you to. You don't have to change them. You don't have to make them different. You don't have to turn them into something. We come to church, we wear flannels and sorrels and shorts during the winter. You guys are weird. <laughs> totally strange. And I'm weirder than you are, which makes it really good. So, it, it, yeah, we, we get to minister right where God's called us and right how God's called us. I don't have to be something I'm not, and you don't have to be something you're not. You see, that's the model that's here in the book of Acts. And they increased in number daily. People are attracted to that kind of ministry because it's unpretentious. You don't end up trying to prove anything to anybody. We just are what we are, as Paul said, by the will of Christ. I just am what I am. I am who I am, and so are you. And so the beauty of that is when I recognize that in you and you see that in me, we can very easily hang out together. 
But if I'm trying to make you into something that you're not, or you're trying to make me into something I'm not, it is not going to work real well. So God sends uniquely gifted people to unique groups of people. That's why the letters to the churches in your Bible are the letter to the church at Thessalonica, the letters to the churches at Colossae, at Philippi, at Ephesus. They were a very specific group of people, and God sent a person there to minister to them who is uniquely gifted for that group. That's the model that you find in the Bible. New people, whole new vision. Crazy how these things open up doors. In verse 6 he says, And now when they had gone through Phrygia and into the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now it kind of sounds strange. The Holy Spirit actually stopped somebody from preaching the word? Yes. And I can tell you in my own life, I have been hindered from doing things that God, I thought, had told me to do. It. You know what I found out later? I wasn't God. It was Mexican food or something that was speaking to me that, you know, I got a vision to, you know, I don't know what it was. I went to bed and I woke up and it's like, i got to go there. And it wasn't the Lord at all. I wasn't ready. I didn't have the gifts needed. I wasn't even able to minister maybe to that particular group of people. And so the Holy Spirit forbade them to preach the word in Asia. And after they had come to... Uh, Mysa, they went on to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So it kind of sounds like a ministry of failure, doesn't it? No, it's just God directing to a very specific group of people. I've basically been in three duty stations in ministry. We started at Calvary Chapel of Vista. We went to Austria. I've been at the camp, and this is really the fourth Okay, I'm doing that simultaneously with the ministry God's called me to at the camp. But each one of those places had a negative aspect to it, some things that Jeff needed to learn to be prepared for the next thing, that Jeff needed to learn to be prepared for the next thing, that basically I needed the tar kicked out of me was what it really was. But I needed to be changed and transformed and worked on. So God puts you, in essence, in that garage to have the body work done first, and then he puts you over here in the shop and has the electrical work done, and then he sends you over to the motor spot, and you get a new motor put in there, and then finally you're ready to be put out on the lot to where you're actually supposed to go, and you actually begin to minister, become somebody's vehicle, so to speak, metaphorically. You see, God does that. And so here Paul and Timothy are traveling around, and Paul's ministering to Timothy, and they go to these places, and, and God's saying, nope, not there. Nope, not there. Nope, not there. Don't take that as defeat. Take that as God still doing something in your life. Take it as a challenge. Okay, Lord, if this isn't for me, I know you have something. Help me to find that place that's the sweet spot for me, where I'm supposed to be. And I'm grateful in the Lord for those stops. Uh, I'm grateful for the hand that was like, nope, not there. Uh, I'm grateful sometimes for the left boot of fellowship. You know, it's just, uh, <clears throat> not, you are not only not, you need to be over there. Now notice, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And now after seeing the vision immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city in that part of Macedonia, a colony, and we were staying in that city some days. Now, of course, we know, because we have the letter to the church at Philippi, and as God 
caused the, the Apostle Paul to go there, he writes one of the most beautiful of all of his letters, this deep, deep letter to this Roman colony in the middle of a Grecian culture um, that we have that is, this, in essence, probably the greatest example of the joy of the Lord that's found in the New Testament. And so Paul would write this tremendous letter uh, from Philippi and plant this church there and uh, it's interesting here, too, also you notice the we's and the they's transfer over here. And, and I believe uh, after they, I believe that now Luke is actually on this journey as well. And so Luke is actually joined in. He's the author of the book of Acts, but it appears that he's actually joined up now with Paul and actually at least on this part of the journey is traveling with them. And we'll see that again in chapter 20. And so they travel about 150 miles takes them a couple of days to make that journey with fair wind. It takes them, we're going to find out in chapter 25 days, to go the other way against the wind. But here he goes and he, he settles down in Philippi. And, of course, we know that because Paul was also a Roman citizen there, because that was a Roman colony, he would be exempt from taxes. He'd be able to minister freely. He'd have all kinds of beautiful privileges in that area of the world. And so he was probably very free to move about and do the things that God's called him to do. And so when he would be imprisoned in Rome, guess who the people were that came and ministered to him there and sent him the, it was the church at Philippi. They were the ones that cared about Paul. And so he went and settled in a little bit there, something he would have missed if he'd stopped in Bithynia and he'd done these other things. And so uh, the Lord having his hand upon him by the Spirit the whole time. We'll finish up with verses 13 and 15 for tonight. We'll finish the rest of the chapter, pick up in it next week as we gather together. And on the Sabbath day, we, notice the we now, Okay, so Luke is beginning to... We started with the days, and now it's the we's. Went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. And there was a certain woman named Lydia who had heard us. And she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful in the Lord, come in, into my house and stay. And so she persuaded us. If she was a seller of purple, it probably means she was quite wealthy. Um, she had a thriving business enterprise. And undoubtedly in that particular uh, time and at that particular place, uh, the Lord had, had set her there. Uh, this is something that Paul would have not been able to do as a Jew. He was ministering actually to women. Um, that was not ever done as a Jewish, as a Pharisee specifically. And so, uh, matter of fact, uh, the words, the words of the Rabbi Hillel were, it's better that the words of the law be burned than to be delivered to a woman. And so it was something that was never done. And here's the softening of this man's heart. You find the Apostle Paul, who is a legalist Pharisee, who's now sitting down in a very intimate environment. He's not in a synagogue. He's completely out of his comfort zone. He's in a place he can't even imagine. And, and yet here this one woman uh, identifies herself with the Lord Jesus Christ and says she's a worshiper of God. That's another way for saying that she had been faithful to the Lord. And so God... Uh, brought her all the way to Greece. Um, she was originally from the city of Thyatira, so uh, here she had, you know, traveled a very long distance as, in essence, a businesswoman. 
And Paul ends up benefiting from this relationship and being brought in and treated well. And so here this woman kind of is a picture of how God works in these miraculous ways at just the right time to bring exactly what we need. Because you remember where Paul has come from. He just got stoned. He was tossed out of a city. He had had a hard go of it. He thought he was going to go kind of back into battle. And all of a sudden, God gives him a time of refreshing. And says, you know what, just come with me for a while. We'll take care of you. Make sure that you're ready for the next round when, when he brings it. Beautiful, beautiful illustration. God who ordains the end also ordains the means to the end. Amen? He knows how to get it done. You don't have to work by the arm of flesh. The Lord can take care of just about anything, anywhere, anytime, anyplace, as long as we're listening. Problem's usually us. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, for the encouragement of the Apostle Paul, the writings here of the great Apostle Luke, Lord, the travels with Timothy and Barnabas, and Lord, as we'll find Barsabbas and these other men who just gave their lives to you and with complete, total abandon said, I just want to be well-pleasing to my God. I want to, as we saw in the book of First Thessalonians, I want to walk worthy of that calling. Lord, we want to walk worthy of the calling with which you've called us. And so, Lord, bless us and strengthen us, encourage us, Lord, use us. Uh, For your plans and purposes, Lord, give us divine appointments. Help us to sit down by a river. Lord, help us to know when to say no. Help us to know where not to go. Lord, help us to know where you would have us to go. These questions, Lord, only your spirit can answer for us. And so, Lord, we do entrust our lives to you by faith. We ask that you would use us now for your glory, for your kingdom thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, family of God, we'll pick up 16 to 40 next week and couple it with chapter 17 as well.